Let's pray. Father, we trust your word. Your word will work. It will do as you send it out to do. It will accomplish that which you command it to accomplish. It will accomplish your will. And so we trust you and we trust your word and pray that as it goes forth this morning that it would land softly onto ready hearts and willing minds that need more Jesus and want to be more like him. So pray that transformation would take place. Pray that you would be glorified and in your glory we would be satisfied in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Your children, they look like you. Some of your children look a lot like you. Some of your children don't look much like you, but maybe look like your spouse. I think one thing is sure that, that we, we are sure of is that our children are a, really a reflection of us. They're so similar to us. My wife and I always joke about like, you know, uh, when one of our kids does something like, oh, that's so you, or like, oh, he's so much like you, you know, and we love to do that as parents because you see yourself and your kids, and it's a, it's a cool reality to experience, and our children have like, you know, little idiosyncrasies that they have that kind of indicate that we share genetic information with them, but here's the thing. Your children are not your image. They're only like a piece of you, they only got some information from you. Part, uh, the parts that they got from you are mixed with their other parent. And then there are, there's, there's like much of their personality that is unique to them and really isn't a, uh, either like you or your spouse. And so what we see in our kids is though they're so much like us, they're not fully, genuinely image bearers of us as parents. And my point, <laughs> should you just give an amen to our kids now, <laughs> bearing our full image? I agree. So my point is that our children reflect our image, but they are not our image. They are not fully us. They are only like a rendering of fragments of us. And that reality for humans is what makes Jesus so profoundly unique and glorious he is more than a reflection of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, as the author introduces the glory of Jesus Christ, he says of Jesus, he is the exact imprint of the Father. Or as today's text says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. So we'll explore what that means to God and to Jesus, that he's the image bearer of the invisible God, and also what that means for us. Last week, I told you that there's something very important happened back in verse 13. So today we're in verse 15. Last week was verses 13 and 14. Um, if you're new here, this is something that we do, is we believe in expositional preaching. We believe that we, preach, we should preach the word verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Um, and so we are in Colossians, and last week was verses 13 and 14. Today is the begin just half of verse 15. And, and what we saw last week in verse 13 was this, what, we, what I call a Trinitarian shift, where Paul's talking about God the Father and then transitions to the Son. And that's the kickoff to this great abundance of Jesus-centered text in verses uh, 15 through 23. So the next 10 verses, basically, or the next nine verses, 
are just incredibly Christ-saturated Bible verses and texts that are all about Jesus. And I would say, this is just my perspective, this is uh, the most profoundly Christ-centered and Jesus-exalting text in the entire Bible. And it is my great joy that I get to preach them. So my hope here and my goal for, for myself and for you is not just that this would be a sermon about a Bible verse, but that what you would see and hear this morning is the enormously, amazingly awesome and glorious person who is Jesus Christ. That he, he alone would be exalted. That as, we, as Paul breaks down this person, Jesus, this man, this God, that you would see him for who he truly is. I, I was, my wife and I were talking this week. We're having conversations about creativity. And it got us to talking about the creativity of God and his nature. And the more we started talking about God, the more I started. I just pulled out my phone. And, you know, there are times when I have thoughts about God. And I just write them down and I type them out in my notes in my phone. And then after a while, you start, I start to realize I've got a collection of all these thoughts about God and in every one of them as I shared them with my wife she's like so basically everything you put down on they type out is really just about the nature of God and I'm like yeah basically she's like so don't you think that's probably like your uh the the thing that I forgot the word she used um the thing that you are most passionate about and I'm like absolutely like telling people who God is I think in the American culture, and a little bit, and maybe a lot bit, in the American church, is a very skewed and sinfully perverted version of God. And there are genuine, good, godly people who love Jesus and know God, but maybe don't know him as well as we should. I am included in that group. None of us know God to the fullest extent. But it is my ambition, that was the word ambition, it is my ambition to preach to you the nature of God. And God himself is like, God the Father is, is not visible, which we'll see today. And that's, that's beautiful because the, I'd say the problem with that in our sinful nature is that because God's invisible, we kind of create our own little God. And let's be honest, when we create a God, it's going to be little it's not going to be the true God. And so, God gives us something even better. Himself in flesh, tangible reality, Jesus himself, that we can see and know and understand. And it is him that I want to preach to you. It is him that I want to exalt. His nature and his character is the person of God and the complexities of who he is that is my ambition to preach to you. So my hope this morning is not just that it'd be like, oh, there's a sermon about Jesus, but that you'd be like, whoa. Now, I, I don't think that this text is exceptionally mind-blowing, but as we explore Christ verse by verse throughout these 10 verses, I pray that, and I hope that, what you would see is, you know, I, I don't know if I had a full understanding of who God really is. We should be growing in our understanding of who he is and what he's like constantly. And it's my hope that today would be the beginning of that journey where we start to see Jesus for who he truly is. So we're in verse 15, and Paul writes, He is, talking, talking about Jesus, 
He is the image of the invisible God. Now, there are two elements to this text. One, we see that Jesus is an image. And then two, we see what he is an image of, God the Father. Now, in order to understand the importance of Jesus being the Father's image bearer, we must understand that which is understandable but not viewable, namely God the Father. Paul calls him the invisible God. So plainly, this means exactly what it sounds like. We cannot see God visibly. He's invisible to us. God dwells in unapproachable light. He is in a spiritual realm that is not our physical earthly existence and reality as a the realm in which we live, which is this earth, this life, this universe, this creation. He dwells in a different realm, and he's invisible to us. Now, God has manifested himself visibly many times, but Jesus said in John 5 about God the Father, none of you have ever seen him or heard him. Meaning, what you saw was me. That's what he's telling us. You always saw the Son, and all these manifestations, it was the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament or, the, or, or Christ showing himself in the flesh in the New Testament. And so God's invisibility is less a matter of his willingness to show his face and more a matter of reality. So God has established, so just let's get this baseline information up, uh, founded up front. God has established your reality. All things that are real to you are determined to be real by God alone. What is real to you is real because God says it's real and God creates reality. He himself is such a complex and powerful being that he can have an idea and that idea can become real, tangible, physical. And so when I talked about my wife and I talking about creativity, the reason we were having a conversation about creativity was because we watched a little um, like 20-minute documentary on Netflix about, the, about creativity. And, and as they're explaining creativity, they're like all that, and their whole point of the show is like, you know, people are incredibly creative, but all we can do is create f- from things that already exist. Right? We can only create with what we have. If you paint a painting using a brush, the brushes already exist. The colors already exist. The combinations of how you put the color and the, and, and the paint and the brush and how you stroke it onto the canvas and all those things, there's probably like, you know, a hundred trillion different possibilities of how you could create something, which is a gift from God that he would give us the opportunity to be so creative and create something. But still, all that we create already exists. When God created, there was nothing. He created from nothing. We, the, the, the biblical term is ex nihilo, from nothing that he created. So he took nothing and went, created. We don't have that power, that possibility. So just that, that alone is a foundational element to the nature of God, that he creates from nothing to create everything that exists. In his creation, all that is real to you is determined by his will. The way in gravity, gravity is God's will. He creates gravity, he ordains gravity, he sustains gravity, which we'll see in verse 17. He sustains all things, he sustains every cell in your body. 
Every atom that exists is maintained and held together by him. He is operating at all times in all things to, to, to in, ensure and hold together all that is real to you. And we don't think about that daily because we don't walk around being like, oh, this is made of some pretty sturdy atoms. Like we don't think about reality that way. We're just like, it's made of wood, right? And that's, that's all we think about. And, and, and so when we dive into the complexity of God, what we'll see, and I think this is really important, is that our reality that we understand and know is insanely complex, incredibly complex, it is beyond our own understanding, and it's in very intricate, detailed, uh, kind of like knit and woven together uh, process of like, you know, atoms and molecules, and God works all these things together, and then just, I mean, you think about the fact that every word that's coming out of my mouth right now is a product of neurons firing in my brain telling me to say things, and those neurons are fired by... Um, by impulses and, and like how all that works and how all that coordinates into a thought in my head and then transfers into a language that comes out of my mouth that you can hear through your ear and understand in your brain. It all happens in an instant. That's insanely complex. And we take it for granted, and that's fine. I mean, we can't think about this kind of stuff all the time. We would be exhausted, right? So, so like, but when we consider the complexity of our reality, what we also see is that we have psychologists all over the world, uh, psychiatrists, scientists, and doctors, and the reason we have them, and there's millions of them all over the globe, because they are all trying to understand and apply the complexity of the human being. We are so uniquely, incredibly complex, not, just, not only is humanity in general complex, but each of us are individually unique as well which is what makes the complexity so incredible. So that is only human beings. Consider other things like time and space, other parts of creation. God created time and God created space. We're three-dimensional beings living in a, a three-dimensional world, moving along in a succession of moments, moment by moment, uh, so quickly that every time we have a thought, that thought is immediately a past thought. We, our reality is so complex that we can't even hold on to the present at any moment. It's always slipping into the past. And we're always walking into a new moment. That's incredibly strange. When you think about it, it's, it's normal to us because that's all we know. But it's incredibly strange to me and, and, and awesome that God created that reality for us. And so our reality is so complex we can't even hold on to the present. If you think about the, the ramifications of that, it requires constant dependence on God. Are you going to breathe now? You don't know. Now? You don't know. Your next breath? You don't know. I thought maybe somebody stopped breathing because the police officer walked in while we were in the, while Christian was in the middle of praying. He goes, somebody called 911 from this location. And I looked in here and I was like, well, they're all praying. I think they're all breathing. <laughs> but they're all praying. So I think we're good. So we don't even know when our next breath is going to be. It, this reality causes us to be totally dependent on God. That's why he made us the way he made us. So I could go on and on down this philosophical path of exploring all the ways in which our reality is beyond our comprehension. But to do that, I, to, to venture down that road would take an eternity. 
And the fact that it takes an eternity, again, only validates how complex our reality really is. And the complexity of our reality is important to understand because our reality is just a glimpse of the truest reality and the most profound existence in which God lives. If our own reality is so complex, and to God, our reality is like Legos in his hands. The toy. I'm talking about the toy Legos, right? There, you know that there are 915 million different constructs you can make with Legos. 915 million. Would you look at a box of Legos? Say you put a bunch of Legos in your hand. Would you look at that and say, wow, that is incredibly complex? No, you'd be like, it's just a bunch of Legos. I could, you know, build a little house out of it in five seconds and be done. That's not complex. So consider the complexity of Legos, okay, that we would call them very simple. And, and if, if you built a little Lego village and you built little houses and trees and road and you took a little Lego guy, is he real? No, he's plastic. And you stick him on the road and you put him in the house. You look at this and say, this is incredibly simple compared to the complexity of my humanity. This little Lego guy can't think at all. He has no agency, no mind. I am incredibly complex with a mind. The difference between this Lego village and this little Lego man and you is this much. When you compare the complexity, the difference in complexity between God and us, it's infinite. Infinite. Just, just to give you an idea of how much more complex the mind of God really is. The fact that it will take an eternity to, be, to, to grasp all the parts of him. And that for eternity we will continue to forever be amazed at the continued complexity of God. That forever we will worship God for his glory that he reveals to us day by day and moment by moment over and over again. Seeing more and more beauty and more glory and more complexity and more depths to God. That we don't understand and can't see now. And it will take eternity for us to get there because he is infinite and has no end. So I say all that to help us understand that there's a big difference between our complexity and God's. And so the question is, if we are so complex that after thousands of years and millions of people trying to figure out what humans are like, we still don't know, and our complexity is Legos to God's complexity. How mind-blowing is he? So my hope is that we kind of see just a, a glimpse. I mean, what, we're gonna, what you're going to see today is just a, a, a sliver of that complexity of God. And because of this complexity, because God is so enormously beyond our comprehension, one of the ways in which that it has to be expressed is that he cannot be visible to us. It's too much. We can't see him. If he is that much more complex and real and indescribable than our reality, and if his glory is the visible manifestation of his being, then we can at least understand that to see his full glory would be far too overwhelming for our feeble human minds. Okay, I'm not calling you stupid. <laughs> We're not stupid. We are insanely smart. We are incredible creatures. The things that we create, the things that we invent, the thoughts that we have are just unbelievable. Humanity is 
awesome. You look at animals, what do they do? Dig holes and kill things and eat them. I mean, that's about it, right? Like, and they obey us. I mean, animals are really rather simple in, in their own physical being. They're very complex, but their operation, their will is very simplistic. We are incredibly intricate and unique. And our minds are feeble compared to God's mind. So God alone can bear the weight of his own glory because it is far beyond our third dimensional existence and our minimalistic minds. And I say that our minds are minimalistic not because we aren't complex, but because compared to God, we are rather simple. Now we see this reality played out in the Bible as well. Moses is on Mount Sinai and he asks God to show him his glory. And this is God's response in Exodus 33, 20. He says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So instead of God showing Moses the fullness of his glory, he shows him his backside as he passes by Moses. So basically, and I'm speaking kind of metaphorically here, God shows Moses the tail end of his glory, a manageable version of his glory that won't kill Moses. So think of it like this, standing in a room, and you're in this room, and you're looking at an open door to the hallway, and as you look into the hallway, um, you see a king walk by in his kingly gown. It's, it's, it's going to be purple, because purple is a sign of royalty. So this king walks by in his purple robe or gown or whatever it is, and, and, and as he walks by, you don't get to see the front of the king. You don't see him approaching, so you miss some things. You, all you see is this purple gown that has this really long train trailing behind him. And this is important because if you remember, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember when Queen Elizabeth became queen, or maybe it was her wedding, I don't remember, but I do remember the video, and she had a gown, and the, the, the trail of her gown was all the way down the aisle of the sanctuary. It was like, I don't know, I'm going to guess, 50 feet long. That's insane. You know how heavy that thing must have been? <laughs> she was probably like, you know, looks like those football players who are pulling those tires when they're working out. So, so that, the, the point of that long tail, that long trail to the gown, the purpose of it is to reflect majesty and royalty. So imagine this king walks by in his purple gown. You see this long trail just scooting along the ground as he continues to walk away. And your thought would be that with such a great robe that goes on and on and with such a great train, this king must be supremely royal. But seeing the train of his robe would not suffice to help you gather the full image of the king. What does his face look like? How magnificent is his crown? How many jewels is he wearing? Is he handsome? Does he have a beard? How extravagant is the rest of his apparel? You don't know because you couldn't see. So instead, you can only gather that with such a great train that follows behind him, the rest of his most important features must be astoundingly majestic. So metaphorically speaking, that is what Moses saw. The trail of God's glory, only the robe of his glory trailing behind, trailing along him. And God's glory is so incredibly 
paralyzing and breathtaking and unimaginable that when God shows him the tale of his glory, Moses' face shines with the glory of God so brightly that he has to veil his face when he gets to the foot of the mountain and presents himself to the people so that they are not blinded by the reflection of God's glory that's coming off of Moses' face. Again, it speaks to the incredible, massive, enormous, unimaginable, unfathomable reality of God that his glory, which is the brightness and the reflection and the manifestation of his true nature, his holiness, is so amazing that we can't even look at it. So amazing that the tail end of it, the trail of it, the backside of it, as it reflects off of a human's face, is too much for humans to bear. We have a small God in our minds. We do not often consider the enormous nature of who he is, the complexity of who he is, and the fact that his invisibility is meant to save your life. God's glory is so bright, so majestic, that its reflection even from the tail end of his glory, is too much for humans to fully bear. And this is part of God's reasoning for his invisibility because his glory is so magnificently powerful and and, and alarming and awesome that to see his face, to see his glory, would be overwhelming to our flesh, So, so much so that we would not be able to physically bear it and survive. That's important because this next statement is even more important. That is why he sends Jesus. To be the image of the Father in human form so that we can see God, so we can absorb his face, so we can look upon him, so we can worship him, so we can touch him, so we can be with him, so we can talk with him. Right now we don't have that because he's in heaven waiting for us, waiting to return. And we're here on earth without him, but we have his word and we have the Holy Spirit who Jesus says is even better for you than when he was here. Because the Holy Spirit must come so that the future plan and promise would be fulfilled that we could spend eternity in his presence. So we are not left alone without God. We get Jesus in the flesh and we get a spirit living in us. That is the significance of Jesus coming in the flesh because the complexity of God, the enormity of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God, the awesomeness of God, the beauty of God, the majesty of God is too much for us to bear. And then I think about what does that mean practically in my life? You know what it means? It means when I sit down and I close my eyes and I pray to God, I do not think of this being that I just talked about. I think about this guy He's old, sitting on the throne. And I'm like, God? And he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, uh, so your word says I can come boldly with confidence to your throne because of your son Jesus. He's like, yep, what do you want? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I screwed up. He's like, I know, I saw it. <laughs> Think you could help? <sighs> yeah, totally. I'm getting sick of this, Mark. <laughs> Can change any time now, man. You know, and I'm just like, that. and then I read the Bible, I'm like, that's not who he is at all. That's not who he is at all. First of all, I'm visualizing God as a person. 
He is not a person. Jesus said in John chapter 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God doesn't have a physical being. All the, all the uh, descriptions of God the Father in the Bible that give him human amenities like eyes and mouth and hands and things, those are anthropomorphic terms to help us understand and grasp him. He does not have those things. He's spirit. But we get the tangible, real God himself in a human form that we can understand and think about. So now when I think about God and I pray, I think about Jesus, the man. I don't know exactly what he looks like. It's hard to get the image of the guy who plays Jesus in the show chosen out of my head when I pray, but <laughs> I'm working hard at it. <laughs> so the beauty of God's invisibility is that it require, it's required because God is so beyond our comprehension. And that requirement creates an avenue for us to get the Son of God, God himself, in the form of man. In Jesus Christ. And this is also why God's second commandment, not to make any carved images, is so important. Because one day, God would have Israel create the Ark of the Covenant, which would house God's glory. And that Ark would represent the glory of God that was to come later in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in the next chapter, Colossians 2.17, he says, These, he's talking about Old Testament realities such as the Ark of the Covenant. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Meaning all the images of God and his glory are only to be made according to his command, such as the Ark, which the Israelites did with the Ark of the Covenant. And this is important because one day in Israel's future, and for us in the past, God would send the ultimate non-man-made image of himself in the Messiah, Jesus. All past images of God and his glory that he approved were meant to be a shadow of the true substance who is Jesus. And that is the importance and significance of the invisibility of God. And that importance and significance of God's invisibility is what makes verse 15 so important to the nature of Christ. Because this invisible God now gets a visible image of himself in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Our reality is extremely complex. And in terms of our reality, we're less than a toy in God's hand. So how much more complex is God? More complex than, than we could ever fathom. So if that is true, then how do we get God? How do we tangibly experience God and though God is supremely more inscrutable than us and well beyond transcendent to us, he is also a God of love and grace and mercy and nearness. He's close to us. He's with you. He's for you. He's beside you. He's before you. He's behind you. He's everywhere present with you for your good. And then because he's near to us, because he's a God of love, because he's merciful, because he's understanding, he brings his complexity down to us in a understandable fashion. And then we get to know him because he sends to us himself in the form of a human. And that's Jesus.
So Jesus takes on the fullness of God in the flesh as the image of the Father due to the Father's invisibility. Now the Greek word for image here in verse 15 is ikon, from which we get our English word icon. And its Greek meaning is a visible manifestation of an invisible reality. So what's important to understand there is that that is an invisible, but it's real. Anything that's kind of invisible to us, we would say is like not real. And you could say, well, what about wind or, or air is invisible? Well, air is not invisible to us. We can get down to molecular levels and see things, but God himself is invisible, but real. And so Jesus is an icon, an icon, that's the Greek, icon, of God the Father. He is the exact imprint, Hebrews 1, or the image of the Father, the visible manifestation of an invisible reality. So in one word, Paul identifies Jesus as the human manifestation of God in the flesh. And I think it's important to communicate to you uh, what this word image does not mean. This word does not mean that Jesus is a picture of God. Because we think of pictures, right? We'd say, oh, he's a picture of God. We would use the word image to describe a rendering of something more real, such as like a photo of your family, right? So in this photo, it's only a rendering of you. It is not actually you. It's just a picture of you. You're not in that piece of paper. That's a two-dimensional piece of paper. That's not you. That's a picture of you. That is not what the word image means. It's not, he, Jesus is not a picture of the Father. Number two, this word image does not mean that Jesus is a reflection of God. When you look in the mirror, you see your own reflection, but you are not seeing you. The reflection you see in the mirror does not have its own agency. Your reflection doesn't start acting on its own and thinking on its own and doing things on its own. If, if that is happening to you, come talk to me. <laughs> we got deeper de things to deal with. And so that's a reflection. And the reflection, all it does is mimic something more real. And number three, this word does not mean that Jesus is only part of God revealed in the flesh. Later in chapter 2, Colossians 2, 9, Paul says of Jesus, For in him, the listen to these two words, the whole fullness, there's nothing lacking there, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is not a partial rendering of God. He is fully God and the fullness of the Father fully dwells in him. And as I've said many times from this pulpit, in Jesus, we or there is 0% lack of the Father in the Son. So if that is not what it means for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God, then what does it mean? Well, it means Isaiah 7.14 and what Matthew 1.23 says. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So my wife asked me, are you going to preach Christmas sermons now? And I was like, nope, I'm going to preach through Colossians. I'll get to Christmas when we get closer to Christmas. And then this verse just popped out. I was like, hey, look, it's a Christmas sermon now because it's a Christmas text. So there you go. Christmas sermons have officially started. So this is the benefit of Jesus being the image of the invisible God. This is what it means. It means God with us. It's that simple. 
God with us in the flesh, in the Son, in Christ, it means that this intangible God who we cannot see is no longer some voice in the ether barking out commands for us to follow, but shows himself to be a God of the people, a God of love and a desire for his own creation. And through this God-man on earth comes his ultimate sacrifice for our sins, which requires that he be perfect in his humanity and fully God in his deity. Other than getting us salvation through God being with us, what are our benefits to the invisible God making himself visible through the image bearer, Jesus? Now, I can answer that question in multiple ways. What are the benefits to us that Jesus, the man, is the image of the invisible God? We could go on and on. I could give you a hundred different benefits to us and implications and applications. I'm gonna give you two. Two benefits of Jesus, being, of Jesus bearing the fullness of God's image. Number one, God gets glory. So, if you're a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 I thought this was, how does it benefit us? God gets glory. That benefits God. I want to know how this benefits me. If you're a Christian, God getting, getting glory does benefit you. And God getting glory should excite you. As believers, we should want God to be glorified. And when he is, that's our benefit because we get joy. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God being his most glorified in your life is when you are mostly dependent on him, mostly in love with him, mostly desiring him, mostly pursuing him, mostly trusting him, mostly having faith in him. The more you depend on God, the more you need God, the more you love God, the more you pursue God, the more you desire God, the more God is glorified. And if you are doing those things, I promise you joy. Because he will deliver joy as you glorify him. They're inseparable. And if we're believers, if we really love God, then we should want him to be glorified. I mean, think about it. Don't you want your favorite team to win their game? Right? Don't you want your favorite football team to win? Or don't you want your child to get first place in the pageant? Or whatever they're doing, whatever it is, you, you root for somebody. Why? You want them to get the glory because you're for them. You're on their side. Right? Your team wins the, the championship. You're like, yes, we won. You don't get anything, but you're excited. You don't get a trophy. They don't go, the, the star of the player doesn't go up and go, hey, I'd just like to thank that guy at home who's cheering for us right now. They don't, they don't name you by name. They don't care about you. I mean, maybe they do, but, you know, they all, they're getting the glory, and you like to see them get the glory because you're behind them. You're for them. You're on their team. You're beside them. You root for them. How much more then should the God of the universe who loves us and saved us through Jesus, how much more should we desire him getting the credit and the glory and the trophy and the championship? So God getting glory ought to be the believer's greatest desire. And if you're thinking, yeah, I get that, but what's the benefit for me? Joy. Joy in God. And we ought to love that our worthy God gets all the credit. And Paul makes that very clear, Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, 
That's the only thing Paul says he'll boast in. And then 1 Corinthians 1.31, he says an even more broad thing. And he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This removes any possibility of sinful humanity taking any credit for our salvation. This puts the fullness of the glory of our salvation in the lap of God placed there by the hands of a sinless man who is himself also the one same God, Jesus Christ. And this is why our faith in Jesus is a gift from God's grace so that we may not boast in our decision, but instead boast in God's elective will. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says this to us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, what's this? What's the this he's referring to? The this he's referring to is the faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why, God? Verse 9, so that no one may boast. So that God gets the credit. That's the other way of saying it. So that God gets all the glory and all the credit. And as God gets glorified, you get satisfied. The second thing that we get, the second benefit to us, is we get transformation. Romans 8, 29. This verse is very well connected to our Colossians 1.15 verse. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So this word image in Romans 8.29 is the same Greek word that Paul uses in Colossians 1.15. It's the same Greek word, ikon, right? Meaning Jesus is the full image bearer of God the Father, and we too now, what we see in Romans 8, 29, is that now we become image bearers of Christ. And like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so that's a set, that, that, that pattern, like you've got God and you've got Paul, and Paul's saying, I'm gonna be like Jesus and you be like me as I be like Jesus. It's the same reality here. Jesus is like the Father and Jesus is telling, Paul's telling us, be like Jesus because Jesus is being like the Father. And we get to become godly because Jesus bears the image of the Father and in Christ we get to bear the image of Christ and we get continually transformed into the image of Christ-likeness. So what are we to do with this? We are to participate in our transformation. So I do believe fully, wholly, and completely that the Bible teaches very clearly that even when you obey God, that is the Holy Spirit, not you. Ezekiel 36, 27, he will cause you to obey. So the reality is all the transformation into godliness that happens in your life is the Holy Spirit working in you. And even if you choose I don't want to change. I don't want to transform. I would probably go, if you really are that stubborn against change, might question the validity of your faith. I mean, Christians want to grow, but you never know. I mean, sometimes people are just at a weird stage. But either way, if you just decided you don't want to grow anymore, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit will work on you. Whether you like it or not, he will transform you. He will cause growth in your life. He will put things in your life. There will be hardships. There will be sufferings. There will be blessings and wonderful gifts. There will be all kinds of different ways that the Holy Spirit will turn you into Jesus. He will transform you out of sinfulness and into righteousness. He will do that work. But we can expedite that process. 
by joining him in this in this in participating with him in our transformation in our growth into Christ likeness and there are a number of ways that we can expedite that process some really basic general things that I'm going to say and now don't just don't just blow these off as yeah, yeah those are things I know we're supposed to do as Christians no no evaluate is this you are these things in your life that need to change? Are these things in your life that need to be enhanced in order for you to grow in Christ-likeness? Reading your Bible more. Praying more. Serving more. Giving regularly and faithfully. Obeying the commands in the Bible which come from spending time in the Word. How are you going to know what to do if you don't know what to do? You have to read it. It tells you what to do and how to do it. How to think and how to feel. And as we grow in the knowledge of the word of God, we will gain the mind of Christ. And as we grow in the mind of Christ and we start to make decisions that the Bible is not explicit about, like, should I buy this car or that car? Should I go to this college or that college? Should I marry this person or that person? What should I do with my life? The Bible doesn't tell me thou shalt buy a 2015 Kia Optima white with all the trim. Like, it doesn't say that in the Bible. So what do I do? Do I buy that car? I don't know. God doesn't tell me what to do. So how do I know what decision to make? My decision is determined by having on and wearing and being filled with the mind of Christ. And the only way I get that mind of Christ is if I'm deep in God's word. We just are a little too flimsy with godly disciplines reading the Bible, praying, giving, church attendance. And you know why? Because we're, law, we're lawful people. We really are very lawful, and then because we're lawful, we hate the law. We don't want to be lawful. We don't want to be like, oh, I, I don't want to do that because that's legalistic. I, I shouldn't have to do those things to be saved. I'm not saying you have to read your Bible, pray, go to church, give, serve, and so on and so forth in order to get saved or even to stay saved. But what I'm saying is genuine believers who love Jesus ought to want to do those things. I mean, I've used this example a million times. I love my wife. And because I love my wife, when I get home, I'm like, hi, wife. And I go up to her, and I give her a hug and a kiss. And, and, and then I, I talk to her, and we have conversations, and, and we relate to each other, and then we go on dates together. And, and then our kids go to bed and we have, you know, our time together where we can talk or watch a show or a movie or just spend time, whatever. So, like, I invest in my wife. Why? Because I love her. And because I love her, I want to know her better. I love my wife, but Jesus is way better. <laughs> and she knows that. that. I can say that. Don't worry, I'm not in trouble. I can say that <laughs> because before we even started dating, we were both like, just so you know. Jesus is number one. You, back of the line. So, like, we weren't that mean to each other. But uh, we both know that Jesus is number one. She is not the most important person in my life. Jesus is. I am not the most important person in her life. Jesus is. And I love Jesus so much, Jesus tells me to love my wife, so I love my wife. And she does the same to me. Imagine if I come home and I was like, she's like, hi, husband. And I'm like, eh. And I walked away. I was like, I don't have time for you this morning, today. Well, what about later tonight when you get home? Nah, I'll be tired. Okay. Um, tomorrow? Mm, depends on how I feel when I wake up. I don't know if I want to talk to you or not. You know what? I should. I probably, I'll start tomorrow. I'll start talking to you tomorrow. 
You wake up in the morning, you're too tired, you're like, I don't want to talk to you. You're like, I should though. Uh, hey, wife. And then you just go to work. Would that be a healthy marriage? No. So why would we think that when we treat God that way, we'd have a healthy relationship with him? I mean, really. Don't you love talking to him? Isn't he just like so comforting? I mean, I, there are times when like things are at their worst and I just like think about, you know, that version of God I shared with you earlier is like sitting on a throne, this old guy. What do you want, Mark? That's not at all who I think of God as now. I used to have that bad, poor, unbiblical vision of God. Now I've got this beautiful, overflowing Niagara Falls of love and mercy just pouring all over me. Loving endlessly, loving without holding anything back. This God who just mercifully, kindly, graciously, faithfully gives more and more of himself to me. Loves me so much, sacrifices life for me. I love that guy. I want to talk to him. And when I'm struggling, it is, it is so awesome to just go, everything else in my life, go away. And I just sit down like, God, comfort me. And he does. Instantly. No, it's not weird. I don't feel like, uh, you know, the spiritual blanket hover over me like, oh, I felt the presence. It, it doesn't even have to be a physical feeling. That's not my point. My point is I can just, I can feel his comfort. Just knowing that what this word says is true. If you're not in this word, you're not reminded continually over and over, day after day, all the time. You're not constantly reminded that this God is your comfort and your peace and your truth and your life and a voice and an ear to listen to you and mercy for your sins and forgiveness endlessly at the cross of Jesus Christ. You forget those things. You have to be reminded of those things daily and constantly. You have to be in his word so we know God better so that when life is difficult and when things don't go well or even when they're going great, we, go, we know who to go to. And we know what he's like. So we can't be flimsy anymore with godly disciplines. Prayer can't be like one of those things we kind of do sometimes. If you did that to your marriage, you wouldn't have one. Why do we treat God that way? So let's invest in our spiritual lives. Let's practice godly disciplines. Let's not just read our Bible and pray and serve more and give regularly and obey the Bible and get into discipleship, which the elders are starting to do with men in this church, discipleship, and joining a Bible study. Those are great things to do. Saturday, Saturday morning sisters, Saturday sisters on Saturday morning here at the church. Uh, Wednesday night Bible study for women in the room about front. Uh, and then in January when Christian gets back, we're doing a Bible study for men. That's another thing to get involved in. Those are things you can do to grow. Those are disciplines you can practice. But not only those things, but what about things we don't talk about so much or so often? Like examine yourself. Examine your sin. Examine your righteousness. Have you ever sat down and really thought about who I am, what I'm doing right, and what I'm doing wrong? And what does that mean to God and to me? What do I need? Do you ever talk to God about those things? Do you ever lay those things before his feet and say, you've forgiven these do you declare the power of the gospel to conquer those very sins with which you struggle? Do you declare those things? Because it's true. You can declare it. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself 
for us. That giving himself for us is the conquering of our sins. And we struggle with them, and we hold on to them, and we don't talk about them to God, and we don't talk about them to other people. We keep them to ourselves, lay them at his feet, let the nails take those sins. Often our lack of spiritual growth is not the Holy Spirit's delay. It is our own unwillingness to take biblical steps into godly disciplines which result in our own self-produced suffering and anxiety and depression. And then when we are so deeply buried in our own sin, we cry out for help that we could have asked for a long time before and would have saved ourselves a lot of hardship. But hey, we're not perfect, right? And so... We're going to fail at this. And when we do, we have the God of the universe, this complex, invisible, unbelievable, unimaginable, unfathomable God who we cannot even comprehend or understand other than the things which he's revealed to us in his word and shown us in creation. We just can't get him. This God, and despite our lack of perfection, despite our lack of desire for godly disciplines, despite our time in prayer, despite all the things we don't do right, and despite all the things we do wrong, despite ourselves, despite our sin, despite our humanity, he's near to us in the flesh, in Christ. That is a great comfort. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you so much, Jesus. You are, you are the touchable, tangible God in the flesh. You went from eternally being God to becoming eternally forever now God in the flesh. You chose to wear flesh for the rest of eternity so that we could know you and so that your Father would be glorified. Make that truth exciting to us. and Let it be the cause that gets us motivated towards spiritual growth and transformation. Help us take steps toward good, godly disciplines so that we could become more like Christ and bear your image in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...